Welcome to this week's episode of the Making It in Asheville podcast. Each week, we sit down with an Asheville entrepreneur, small business owner, creator, community leader, and we ask them what they are making and how they are making it in Asheville. I'm your host, Tony Bertaccio. Two years ago, about just under, my wife and I moved to Asheville. And leading up to that move, we were not sure what we were going to do. We had an idea. Let's interview people who are making it and see what we can learn from them. This podcast is now your podcast. It's a podcast where you get to learn how other people are making it in Asheville. We build community and we try and support the community uh, with meaningful stories of Asheville's inspired workers and community leaders. And this week, I am so pumped to introduce Mirwan Irani of a whole number of cool restaurants and more in Asheville and beyond. Um, Mirwan, I am, I could read your bio, but how, how do you define your roles today? Uh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I'm still figuring it out, Tony, to be honest. Which is Um, fair because it's one thing to say, you know, restaurateur, but it seems like it's more than that. So entrepreneur, is it? business builder I, yeah, I mean entrepreneur would be the entrepreneur would be sort of the word that that um uh probably would come to mind for most people first when they when they think of me and I, I hear that a lot associated with my name entrepreneur but just personally um it's sort of I, I kind of think of myself as what drives you know it, it is not the sense of entrepreneurship right. I think what drives it is is creativity I mean I like to think of myself as a creator you know, and, and I'm not an artist, or at least not in a conventional sense. No. Um, but I do view um, the creation of engaged, awesome enterprises as an art form. Mm. Um, you know, it's easy for anybody to just uh, open a business. But, um, well, I say that flippantly. It's not necessarily for everybody. Yeah. But it's a lot harder to think about sort of the business from a aesthetic standpoint or a um, – you know, artistic standpoint, if you will. Yeah. And that's why I attracted to restaurants and food because there's so much room for that expression of creativity and art. I love that as an answer. Uh, and I sort of, I asked that because it seems that, that it seems that you have a slightly different view than I'd say the typical, like I'm going to open a pizzeria in small town USA and every day I'm going to be behind the counter rolling out dough and and pouring my heart into pizzas, there's there seems to be a bigger picture that you're looking at uh, a a client experience relationship right. that transcends just maybe the food or the food product uh, into experiential type things. And so it started, if I'm not mistaken, with Chai Pani it was your first restaurant, and hey, back in 2009, right. 2009, 2009 to 2001 is not a long time. In my opinion, it's a long time for me, but in like in the grand scheme of things, not a crazy long time. And how many restaurants are we up to at this point? A restaurant I, I, identities? <laughs> well, we've got um, six sort of locations, restaurants with multiple concepts, and okay. and uh, I'm in the in the right, literally speaking, in the middle of opening uh, at least two more concepts in the next sixty days. <laughs> okay. And then, um, there's the spice, then there's Spice And there's Spicewalla. Spice and so is Spicewalla the only non-prepared uh, food business in your portfolio? Correct. For okay. now. For now. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Uh, and so w- what I'm hoping to do, we've interviewed some chefs. We've interviewed a couple of restaurant owners. Um, 
I am fascinated by what's happened in the last 12 years of, of growth for you. So what I'd love to do is attempt to spend this conversation, or at least a portion of it, talking about the steps and the learnings and the growth that you had to go through to go from one to six, one to many, uh, because that is, it seems like at some point you need to let go of certain roles, responsibilities, hats, identities to take on the next steps. And I don't know, I couldn't even pretend to. I could, I could, I could throw some darts and you tell me if I'm close. Um, but I, I'd love to then just start by saying like before Chai Pani, what were you, what did work look like for you? What were you up to? Yeah, I had a pretty long journey to Chaipani. I, I imagine. Mean, it's worth noting that I was 39 when I opened Chaipani, and it wow. was my first culinary you know, enterprise of any any kind. I'd never even, prior to that, worked professionally as a cook or professionally in the restaurant build a business. I mean, we've all waited tables in college <laughs> and done that. So um, let's see. My journey started you know, when I left India to come here to go to graduate school. So just like many Many, uh, you know, enterprising academic type types that was shipped off to America by my parents and uh, ended up in South Carolina, not because I particularly cared about being in South Carolina. I didn't know anything about what South Carolina was relative to what, let's say, L.A. was. But uh, it was where I got an assistantship. So tuition was covered and paid for. And my family also had uh, some uh, some connections there where, so that there's some a family there that I could stay with when I first landed and kind of find my way about the U.S. Um, so after a couple of years of grad school, I then left to go to California, which is where I met my wife to be Molly. And I started um, my own business selling jewelry, huh. uh, basically. Um, well, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of the, you know, people keep going, oh, you must have an entrepreneurial bug. And when I look back at these steps along the way, I realized I probably did. I went to California, interviewed with Dean Witter, which at the time was a brokerage firm, which has since then either merged or gone under. Mm. And that would have been the traditional trajectory for me been out, coming, out of, coming out of an MBA program. Got it. So um, it was an MBA uh, graduate program. So exactly, perhaps exactly. slightly more traditional finance and exactly. modeling. Finance background, uh, accounting background. Starting background. to make a little bit more sense about the growth now in Ch Chai Pani. Because yeah. that, that's the thing that seems like to me is typically not – also in the brain of most restaurateurs who come from the kitchen. Chefs. Exactly. That Got is it. exactly right. So I did have that, you know, that background in business. Um, you know, my, um, my majors were in what, organizational structure hmm. and also in the management of information systems, you know, precursor to computer science and, and what you see now in Silicon Valley. So, um, but, and my mom was an entrepreneur. I mean, she, uh, started a business uh, exporting jewelry basically around the world. And so when I arrived in the U.S. and I had a choice between, you know, going out and getting my first job and wearing a suit and tie, which is what I was offered mm -hmm. at, at Dean Witter, uh, the day I was supposed to show up to work, I, but what I did, uh, I did a no-show, no-call. Yeah, oh, no. Just, you know, the, in the restaurant, restaurant industry, language. It's just like the worst thing you could possibly do. I just didn't even tell them I wasn't showing up. I just didn't do it because the morning I was about to go to work and I had to get there early because – we were on the West Coast, but we had to match East Coast trading time, Ooh. so I had to be there at 4 in the morning. Oh. I, I just looked miserable, and, and Molly, you know, we were newly married, looked at me and says, I've never seen you look so miserable when you're, you know, getting ready to what should have been the start of an exciting career. And I was just like, I don't know if this is who I am. I don't know if I, if I want to do this. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so I didn't go. And then I 
you know, very quickly realized that I had to come up with something. So I reached out to my mom and I said, hey, what if I'm one of your clients? What if I import jewelry into the U.S. and, and try to sell it myself? So that's how I started. It was very bootstrapped. I mean, it was just me working out of my apartment, yeah. making, you know, uh, calls on to businesses and boutiques and where, where I thought I could sell my wares. And this wasn't high-end diamonds or gold or anything. It was mostly silver jewelry, like handicraft style made in India. And I did that for about a year and then realized very quickly that either I needed to figure out a way to scale mm. or I was just going to go broke living in the Bay Area on, on what little money I was making. Um, so pretty soon after that, I realized that this interest that I had in computer science was really quite something because I was there in the mid 90s. Yeah. And I saw Silicon Valley sort of taking off and uh, and recognized what was happening there with this tech revolution. And, and I realized that I needed to really beef up on that part of my education. So I enrolled for nighttime classes to study computer science. I'd gotten a, I'd already gotten like a technical degree, what they call an A plus technical degree, where I could mm-hmm. assemble and take apart computers and do some networking. But I knew that you know, if I got a computer science degree and did it fast tracked and try to do a two year program, that you know I'd be I'd be sort of you know really in the driver's seat in terms of a career, and that was exciting to me. So, but I still needed a daytime job mm. while I while I went to went to nighttime college. So I started looking around for something that gave me the flexibility and uh, and made enough money uh, without committing to a career um, and you know without having something where I had to like use a lot of my brain power to do that as a day job while I was going to night school. So while flipping through the the, the San Francisco Chronicle, I saw an ad for a car dealership looking for part time salespeople, huh. and I thought, oh, this is perfect. Like, it's cars. How complicated can this be? Uh, it looked like they were making good money. It was a Lexus dealership. And I'm like, you know, and I was so naive at the time. It didn't even occur to me that, you know, maybe they have no interest in some Indian guy that really wants a computer science degree and is not like some natural-born salesperson, right? But I showed up, and I'm as surprised as you that they hired me. Um, and I kind of fell in love with, with sales. And I fell in love with the auto industry. And when time came to decide if I wanted to stay in it or go ahead and make the switch to a career in, in tech, I stayed. Wow. Um, I was rising rapidly and I started as a salesperson, became a manager and, you know, five years into it was managing a dealership. And in my mind, um, you know, I, I look back and I, I don't regret a thing. It's, I feel like the combination of a business degree mm-hmm. and, and specifically really focused on how organizations are structured not just for the sake of organization, but for all the sake of growth and human resources and how people stay with companies and what keeps employees hanging around longer with a particular company versus other. The combination of that, the ability to sort of think very, um, you know, uh, non-linearly, which is what a lot of sort of tech programming is about, mm-hmm. combined with a five to so, it ended up being a nine-year career in the auto industry, working for Lexus and Mercedes, arguably two of the great retail brands sure. in that space, luxury retail brands that truly understand consumer behavior, psychology, buying patterns, and the fact that if you just need a car, you're not going out there to buy a Mercedes. You're buying it because of how it makes you feel. Right. It's an experiential purchase. I feel like all those were the perfect mix of things I needed when I finally decided I wanted to be in the culinary industry and open a restaurant. So the things that you assume you need, um, you know, a background in food and beverage, 
um, you know, sort of like an education and, and how to cook. To me, those are secondary, actually. Mm. Like, in my mind, those are far easier to figure out and learn how to do, right? I mean, our restaurant, the, the industry is full of people that start as dishwashers and end up as renowned chefs. Right. So I figured, well, you don't need a formal education for that. But the part that you need the formal education for that helps you really understand how to run a business well, I, I kind of already had. And, and the piece that really allows you to create an experience for your customers, that's not just about the food experience, but it's about a holistic surrounding of, you know, how, how you engage with us and how we engage with you. I, I, I learned that from working in the auto industry for, for nine years. Wild. So this is part of the story that I, I've not heard or seen. And I love that you, do you think that it, in the moment you were aware of how this, uh, this like jumbo of different experiences was coming together to make uh, like kind of a perfect thing. Were you, were you freaking I, out that you're in the cars for nine years and you're like, I don't actually care that much about cars or did you actually care that much about cars? No, I, I loved it. I okay. still do. It's still a passion. I love the business. I, I love, I mean, I'm not in the business, but I, you know, I still love the, I love going to a dealership, for example. It feels mm -hmm. like home. You know, if mm -hmm. I have to buy a car, I'm like, I'm excited about it. Most people dread going to go buy a car. I love it. I felt like it was, you know, um, uh, something I understood well, was good at. And, and I'm not just talking about, like, the industry of selling vehicles. I'm saying, like, just the automobiles in general, just mm -hmm. the industry. I mean, I, you know, went to Germany and, and, and with Mercedes and spent time at the factory and kind of – I was I was a car guy. Yeah, okay. All right, so it's, it's not like uh... – there was there was excitement and and life in it. And, oh, absolutely! Uh, I mean, and I was really good at it. I, I think by my third or fourth year working with Lexus, I was probably in the top ten salespeople in all of Northern California. So that's amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, you're not in cars today that I'm aware of. So there was <laughs> so there was a hard uh, transition at one point. Not only uh, you know industry wise, but geographically. Right. So you're not in the Bay Area today. Uh, you're in yep. the you know Western North Carolina and the Southeast. How did that transition happen? Um, well, so that you know, you know, these life changing events that people talk about. Well, I had a couple that came pretty one quickly in the heels of the other. The first life life changing event was when Molly and I realized that we could not have a child. We couldn't conceive our own child. We ended up going to India and adopting this beautiful baby girl from an orphanage in my hometown where I grew up. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, I think obviously having a kid is life-changing for an incredible experience. But I think that extra dimension of the stress and the work and the financial burden and 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 the hardships of adopting kind of makes that gift even feel more precious. Mm. And, you know, my wife ended up having to spend three months in India so that, you know, she could be with our, our child because of just how long it took to clear the paperwork and get back and all of that. So when we finally settled back into our life in the Bay Area with our baby, uh, you know, three or four months into it, uh, we kind of looked at each other and said, this is insane. Like I was gone, you know, 10 hours a day. Molly was working full time, mm. you know, and the kid was being raised by babysitters. And, and that's, you know, we thought like, OK, this is temporary, you know, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. There'll, there'll be some solution where one of us can be more stay at home. And, and it was, the writing was clear that it would be impossible to do and maintain any, any sort of lifestyle that we were attached to uh, if both of us weren't working full time. So that necessitated a change. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't have made that change if it wasn't for 
the most important reasons. And uh, we realized we'd have to leave the barrier in order for us to find a place where one income could support us both. Mm. So and we started looking around, and my wife Molly's family, she's actually from uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina originally, and then it moved to California during, during college and it stayed there. And um, she had uh, family here, you know, and that would, for me, it would be the only family here because my family's in India. And, uh, uh, and she had heard about Asheville, had actually visited Asheville when she was uh, a kid and just had this memory of this cool little town in the mountains full of artists and hippies and mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, a little bit different from what it looks like today. And uh, the more we looked into it, the more we said, like, you know, this is crazy. And it's about as far away as you can get from the very end, about as dramatic a change as one can imagine uh, happening. But what do we have to lose? And the thing about being the auto industry is, like, my job is very portable. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's the, the businesses that are everywhere. Yeah. And, and it's a very unique skill set. And I'd reached a level where I felt like, you know, my resume would get me a job, you know, in management pretty much anywhere I went. So while we were planning on moving to Asheville, and I was sort of like trying to reach out and put some feelers for jobs um, in the area, and um, I ran into a buddy that uh, basically said, well, hang on a second. You're moving to Asheville. Are you interested in doing something other than being in the auto industry? I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Well, he consulted or consults still a lot of these very high-end, second-home, private, gated community, resort-type you know, uh, second residential areas that surround the mountains of Western North Carolina. And, you know, these places are like this, their own world. I and mean, you've got, you know, Jack Nicholas designed golf courses at 4,000 feet, private airstrips, and millionaires from all over flying in and spending summers in their getaway vacation homes in the mountains of North Carolina. And uh, he said, I can get you an intro into that industry if you're interested. I'm like, why would I switch careers to go from this to that? And he said something really, again, important that has stayed with me as a lesson. He said, it's the same people. It's the Mm. same concept. It doesn't matter what it is you're selling. It's just about the fact that you're able to engage, connect, and offer an experience. Uh, Whether it's a high-end car or a high-end piece of real estate or a high-end home, it's it's the same idea. Mm. And he was absolutely right. So I said, and then, of course, he showed me how much people make in in that industry. (laughs) I immediately went like, okay, sign me up, right? (laughs) So I kind of wandered into a job lined up in Asheville, I mean, um, and and started working in the development side of things, sales and marketing for these developers. And um, it bounced around in a couple of places because it took me a little while to figure out there were mature communities where the opportunities for sales were far fewer in between, and then there was up-and-coming ones, and there was a boom happening between 2005 and 2008, mm. and these things were popping up like mushrooms everywhere. So I finally found the place where I, I got in and, again, did phenomenally well. I mean, I had just an incredible year in 2007, made a record amount of money, and then 2008 happens. Yeah, and less people buying second homes in 2008. Oh, less? It went to zero. <laughs> Uh, the development where I was working at in 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 two thousand and um, let's see w- in two thousand and seven uh, had done almost forty million dollars in sales, and by the end of two thousand and eight was just basically had gone six months without a without a single sale. Wow. And I saw the writing on the wall. I mean, 
you know, maybe it was a background finance, but I understood what was happening hmm. in the market large. I understood how these mortgage-backed securities were basically causing a cascade effect. And everybody around me was saying, oh, it'll be fine. It'll come back. It's a temporary blip. You know, and I'm watching, you know, brokerage firms collapsing, hmm. um, you know, and, and, and insurance companies like, you know, AIG basically saying we can't back these things. And I was like, this is going to be brutal. And yeah. I knew I needed to get out early and, and do something quickly. So, but I just didn't know what. So by the summer of 2000, by spring of 2009, um, you know, I'm having that urgent conversation with Molly. Like, we got to figure something out. Like, we, our savings are only going to last us so long. And uh, she said, well, what are you thinking? I said, well, I can always go back to the auto industry. I mean, even in a depression or a recession, people, people still buy cars and, and we can make a living. And that's when she basically said, you've spent your entire career doing what came easy to you. Mm. But if you had to do something that was hard, but you did it because you wanted to, what would that be? And um, it didn't take me long to answer the question. I said, I want to change the way Americans perceive Indian food, but it's too hard. I'm not the guy to do that. That means that I just assume somebody else eventually would do that. And she looked at me and says, well, why can't you be the guy to do that? So that's the genesis story of the Chai Bunny idea. Wow. In the year 2014, I cut my hand open trying to do something fancy and open a bottle of beer. That little cut happened 3 o'clock in the morning. My only option was to go to a hospital in New York City. That quick trip got me four or five stitches. Those five stitches cost me about $1,000 each, maybe a little more. I paid off that hospital visit for years and it made me never want to go to a hospital again. And so when we heard about Range Urgent Care in Asheville, who has a very convenient uh, model one that says, show up anytime, book ahead of time, and you will be seen when we say that we would see you. Uh, they do virtual visits, they do home visits, and they have a pricing model that is consistent, 149 every time you come in. And you can go in for anything that's not proper emergency care, 149 every single visit for x-rays, for stitches for uh, a checkup. You can you can go and not have to mortgage your home to pay off the treatment. How about that? Sounds amazing. Where would you go to learn more about this? You'd go to makingitinashville.com forward slash range. We have links to a number of range subscription options. I subscribe to a single person's uh, subscription plan cost me $30 a month and I love it. It gives me peace of mind. And I know that I will not go bankrupt if I ever cut my hand in the middle of the night trying to open up a bottle of beer. Rangeurgentcare.com or making it in Asheville.com forward slash range to learn more about these plans. Wow, wow, wow. So it seems like uh, in hindsight, you're able to, a lot of guests are able to point out this this single conversation or couple conversations that uh, really were swift kicks in the backside that uh, made, made something happen that was, call it a, a mark in the timeline. Uh, and so it seems like those two conversations of, hey, you now have this hard skill, you can translate it into any version of of that audience and provide uh, value, experiential value. Uh, and then, 
hey, what, what good is doing the thing that comes easy? <laughs> what, what would you do if you could do anything? Uh, so you get that kick from Molly. And what are some of the early steps? Are you looking into real estate? Are you calling up mom and saying, hey, how do we make that thing again? I need like four right. items. Uh, how do you attempt to solve the with an MBA? How do you attempt to solve my first restaurant problem? Right. Great question. I mean, so, you know, the thread that I didn't really talk about that ran all through my arriving in America until until this moment where Molly said, you know, why would you not be the person to do this? Mm. I, I, it was the thread that ran through it all was like from the day I arrived here, I, I almost took a, almost was offended by the way Indian food was being represented. I was offended by walking into an Indian restaurant that was, you know, in a strip mall with a seven ninety nine lunch buffet. Um, and it was just the same experience over and over again. It was such a, such a, you know, watered down version of a very, very narrow spectrum of Indian cuisine. And, and it, you know, eventually I got used to it, but yeah. I just kept marveling to myself, like why is one of the greatest cuisines of the planet from a civilization that's close to 6,000 years old with this incredible variety distilled down to just some curries and rice and, and naan? I mean, this is ridiculous, right? And I don't know why me it bothered me more than the average person. Like my friends also was like, this is not going to be mom's cooking. Mom's not here. You know, just, and therein was the problem that these restaurants were, you know, uh, opened by businessmen hmm. that came and, you know, immigrated here and looked around and said, what does this town need? Um, you know, okay. Somebody has got a motel. It's got a gas station. And I know I'm stereotyping a little bit, but that's kind of probably what it was like during that first generation immigrant, you know, wave that came in America is like, and, and Indians looked within their communities to try to figure out like, okay, well, if my cousin's got the hotel and my you know, brother-in-law's got the gas station, like, well, where's my opportunity? And many of them opened restaurants thinking that there was a need for it. And they populated it with um, men, you know, that uh, to cook the meals. Uh, but, but the problem with that scenario is that the men don't cook food in India. Like, you know, what I'm saying, like, Women are the culinary backbone of the greatest cuisine in the world in India. Uh, men just learn very, you know, it's like the difference between a burger, a line cook flipping burgers, and, you know, and, and, your, and your mom cooking this incredible meal at home. Like, you can't even compare the two. Um, so, so, yeah, back to you. I, first thing I did was, like, I got to call my mom. If I'm going to do something that changes the way Indian food is. Is, is approached in America. I need a mom here. I need a mom in the kitchen, like right now. So yeah, I called her up and I said, you know, I got this idea and I think we can, I can do this. And and she said, I'll, I'll be there like in two weeks. So she got on a plane, flew over um, and spent three months working with me to help design a menu and, and figure out what it is that I wanted to offer, what the story I was trying to tell. Mm. And then I said, she said, who are you going to hire? I said, well, not, not the typical Indian cooks because I know exactly what I'm going to get. She said, well, I'm just like, we hire Americans. You know, she's like, can they cook this way? I'm like, absolutely they can. Um, you know, it's the, if you're here to show them and me how to do this, we can do this. So I hired five young, you know, 20-something kids. Uh, four of whom are still with me 11 years later. Wow. And, and we were the first crew in the kitchen and we all learned together. And I said, Hey, basically guys, I don't know much about working in a professional kitchen. You don't know much about Indian food together. 
we'll teach each other. We got this. We got this, right? <laughs> um, but I was a very accomplished cook, very accomplished. Hmm. Uh, through, you know, throughout my my time in, in, in living in America, I had really learned it. But I was not a professional chef, and I never worked in a professional capacity. So the 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 skill set was there. I just now had to translate it to a professional environment and um, and a restaurant. But here's what I had: I knew how to manage people. Mm. I'd done that, um, and I knew what a retail experience should look like. I had done that, and uh, I had a really really good uh, palate, um, and and most importantly, kind of like. I had this real sense of if you build it, they will come and a real confidence in that. So, yeah, I love it. And I've, I remember reading or hearing at some point that the name Chai Pani is specific. What, what does yes. it, what does it mean? And I, I believe it's, it's part of the story that you're also telling through the food. Correct. So Chinese tea, or the Indian style tea, which is brewed with uh, with you know milk and sugar, and and sometimes spices like cardamom, and pani means water, and it, the words together basically symbolize a form of hospitality. First, it's got multiple layers, because when somebody shows up at your house in India, and quite often people just pop in. It's just part of the culture. Like nobody calls and makes a date and then sets it all up. Like you know, you'll be in the middle of the afternoon and suddenly there's a knock on the door and your neighbors have showed up just, just for a visit, you know? Mm. And the first thing you do is you offer them chai pani. Like, you know, there's a, the head of the household, you know, my mom would come out of the kitchen with water for everybody and chai. That's like the first thing you do. And along with that are always a handful of small snacks, like little, you know, like here you put some cookies and, and maybe some potato chips in a bowl. And then yeah, we'd have our equivalent of that. So it, it signifies hospitality. It's the first, you know, the first thing you offer a guest yeah. when they walk into your home. Then it also signifies going out for some, it's like a light, almost like tapa style snack in between your major meals. So let's say, you know, you're, you're meeting up with a friend after work in the U.S. You'd be like, hey, you want to go grab a drink or a beer at the brewery? In India, you'd be like, hey, you want to grab some chai pani on the way home? And you're just basically stopping by a street hawker or a stall or a vendor, having a cup of chai, maybe a little street snack. And just, you know, the closest equivalent of that is the folks going home, you know, in, in, in Rome at the end of a work, they may stop by a, um, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. And just have an, you know, an espresso or something uh, in the evening on the way home. Um, and then and then the third thing it, it, it denotes is a small bribe because all of India is sort of fueled by small bribes that just grease the wheels, right? This is separate from the high-level corruption, which <laughs> it's its own art form, right? But but literally to get anything done, just because usually public servants are so poorly paid in India. So if you worked in the public sector, government, cop, this, that, the other, like the pay is just horrendously poor, right? So the only way half these poor guys can make a living at all is small little bribes, almost like favors. So you know, you get randomly get pulled over. You give the guy twenty rupees. It's not a you know, it's not a ticket. It's just a little chai pani bribe, right? <laughs> uh, you're trying to get you know some paperwork somewhere. You're trying to get you know the banker to stop what he's doing, and it's just it greases the wheels. And it's a little very, something, very, for, yeah. a little bread, a little bread and water, right. a little something and for it's you. It's not enough for anybody to go out there and make a living off it. Yeah. There's enough for them to go get a cigarette and a cup of chai and yeah. a little snack on the street. So it's called chai pani money, right? So those are the three. Those are the three meanings of the name chai pani, and I loved them all. Because, you know, it denoted hospitality. 
uh, into another that casual little like, hey, let's just pop in for a snack. And it was also funny because it really was like a lifestyle, right? Like <laughs> this little this little irreverent tongue in cheek. And Indians love it. They love the name because they get it immediately, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That's awesome. Um and 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 so I I want to spend time you know in this first restaurant and then also try and understand what needs to happen to go from uh opening to uh opening another location or opening a separate project uh because now there's a couple different things that I know come down the pike in the story of your uh entrepreneurship in in the southeast one is multiple concepts the other is multiple cities the other right. is you know f- fundamentally like different not different food service and so uh, i i would love if we could somehow hit all of those but when you think about the first restaurant project chaipani 1.0 what milestone, what what goals were you setting for yourself in that business? Did you always think that you're going to uh, build an empire? And I'm using that word, not you, right? But build an empire. Right. Or were you like, you know, one restaurant, we do this well enough. Like, we have a quality of life that's hard to beat. Yeah. I mean, the first restaurant was just, you know, a... Um it was hard for me to think of anything other than just opening it and it being successful. Like I was taking such a big risk. It was such a departure from what I've been doing. And like Molly said, like do the thing that's hard, you know, but, but that'll bring you, bring you the greatest joy. And, and that's what it was. But in the back of my mind, of course, was like, this needs to work economically. I need to be able to take care of my family. Mm. Like I need to provide a living for myself and for my family. Even if we're taking a step back, it's worth it. If we can build this out into something else, I would say maybe within less than 30 days of opening, I suddenly realized that this wasn't just about me taking care of my family. My family had just expanded to include, you know, the 10 or 12 Team. odd people that were now working for me. Like we, you know, it's that startup, that early, early, you know, startup when, when a small group of people get together and are trying to do something that they can feel is remarkable. That's how it felt like, you know, and, and and as we kind of plowed through that first year and we're all working this hard in the back of my mind was this constant sort of chatter saying what happens um after eight months of working this brutally hard for everybody here Mm. 10 months 12 months and i could kind of tell what would happen which happens all throughout our industry people would leave Mm. not because um they didn't love you anymore not because they didn't like what they're doing anymore but they would see very quickly, like, this is it. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm a great line cook, but marijuana's not going anywhere. So it's not like I'm going to own this place one day or work my way up the ladder. Um, you know, a great front of house manager, like, what are they supposed to do next? Mm. Um, and I started by the end of the first year. Well, the, 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 another sort of, you know, moment that really helped solidify my thinking was when we recognized that Chaipani, the potential will no longer just be a, you know, cool, hip, little downtown eatery, but was, was um, you know, capturing people's imaginations at, 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 at a larger scale. And it was that New York Times article, you know, that in, in, at the end of her first year that kind of made us go like, whoa, 
yeah, we're getting attention from you know the big city, you know, yeah. and 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 getting this kind of write up and 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 people coming from now out of town and coming and telling us we we read about you and we came to Asheville to try you out. Um, it sort of opened my eyes to like I don't think I just opened a small eatery here. I think I've opened up something that is capturing the public imagination and, and I'm onto something this wow. we could do this again. This is replicable. And, and the two of those ideas sort of really collided um, where I remember um, I think it was like in October or November where I sat down with our small team and I said, Hey guys, I just want to let you know that we're probably going to be stuck doing this for a while, but here's our path out of doing the same thing over and over again every day until we burn out we're going to open another restaurant i don't know where yet i don't know what it goes, it's going to look like but i want you to know that's what we're working towards because mm. i really felt like they needed something to work towards in order to make how brutal the business is you know um mad, you know to, to put up with it and how little everybody was making back then yeah including myself right <laughs> so so the nucleus was in place uh for the idea that we're going to open a second restaurant and then pretty much from there, it became a, you know, a process of extrapolation that the bigger we grow, the more amazing people we're going to attract. The more amazing people we attract, the more opportunities for growth we need to give them. Mm. And I just did not – I didn't want to you know, lose anybody that I felt like I, – I, like my best friends are at work. Mm. So to have somebody leave would feel like, you know, losing a friend that just decided to like, you know, uproot themselves and move somewhere else. Um, so it, what started off by, um, you know, we started growing by design. It, it became a, a, a virtuous cycle to this idea that, oh, well, um, the more amazing people we have, the more it's possible for us to grow. And that growth brings more amazing people in and sort of took off from there. I love that. I, one of the things that that reminds me of is the concept of, uh, you know, you ask two Masons what, what they're working on. One might say, I'm laying bricks as straight as I can. The other says, I'm building a cathedral. It makes sense to try and tell the Masons on your team that we're working towards a cathedral here. Like we're, we're creating something that's going to bring right. pride and honor to the family forever. Right. Um, and then the, the concept of, growing a business to give the the role players opportunity for growth is a really special way of looking at it. Uh, and I, I had not heard that as really as an answer before. Um, that's special. And I just want to reflect that back to you. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, um, it, uh, I mean, I, I tried reading up on it. I tried, you know, find a couple of books on like, how do you grow by design for your team? Not mm. for, not, not, you know, and, and there wasn't a lot out there on this idea that, you know, you grow to, 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 to you know, provide opportunities for your, for your team. I mean, it seemed like that was a opportunities for your team were sort of a natural outcome of growing, mm. but it was never presented the other way around. Like maybe growing is a natural outcome of, of, of trying to think of opportunities for your team all the time. And in the restaurant business in particular, that's just really hard to find. Mm. I mean, it, we're renowned for the highest, one of the highest turnover businesses out there. Sure. Um, and it's also, you know, it's almost cliche that the average person basically works in the restaurant business as a transition 
yeah. a place to be, a quick way to make money. But nobody comes into it and becomes a dishwasher or waits tables other than, hey, I'm out of college or whatever. Or I'm on break. I need a job. They never come into it thinking like, this could be a career. Right. Usually, Unless you're in Las Vegas or, or like correct, New York exactly, City, maybe at, exactly, a, at a steakhouse that's exactly, not going anywhere. Exactly. And, and more so at the front of the house than in the back of the house. In the back of the house, you will definitely find folks that are trying to find a place where they can mm. grow themselves and build a career. But usually with the goal of, well, maybe one day I can own my own place. Mm-hmm. But in the front of the house, which is where the most engagement is happening with your customers and, and with your with your base – is where it's got the most turnover, which yeah. hurts you the most, because how do you manage a high level of engagement when you just have this constant turnover? So it was it was really um, – um, so to solve that problem to a certain degree, I essentially try to open my team's eyes to say, just because you're in the kitchen doesn't mean you can also not work in the front of the house and be an amazing server. Mm. And just because you're a server doesn't mean you can't also be an amazing line cook. Like nobody – you know, we all ended up in these roles accidentally, but there's no invisible line that divides somebody from the front of the house ever. So, yeah, we would have, I mean, even till today, we'll have somebody that may be a server three days out of the week and then a line cook three days out of the week. Huh. Um, and, and, and those roles have flipped back and forth. I can't tell you how many times between somebody that started in the front and that ended up being an amazing uh, you know, cook slash chef or, or vice versa. So uh, you you pointed towards looking for books to to inform or educate or inspire. Right. Uh, a are there books that you found particularly helpful? B does the E myth E myth revisited mean anything to you? Yes, it is. I, I did read that book. Right. So uh, that yeah. to to me is 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 what what I think most people move towards when looking in the service industry or like. Anything that's going to be scalable, stampable, uh, repeatable, um, love it. Also, like there's a bunch of arguments against the E-Myth Revisited as like, how can you want just the lowest common denominator? Like, how can you want that every single character in your play could be easily replaced by someone else? All they need to do is read the handbook and somehow they're good enough? Are you kidding? Uh, And so there's these two you know, right. challenging points of view where it's like build a system, have a process, make sure everyone knows it, and then you can repeat that process. And I imagine right. that's part of building multiple locations. But what you're talking about is how can I honor like each person and allow them yeah. to get what they need and what they want from this business? And they seem to challenge each other at least a little bit. Right, they do. I mean, and, and I read that book carefully, and in the beginning, it did inform a lot of the way I was trying to set up systems, you know, when, mm. I, when I was opening the restaurant. I, I kind of read it, actually, very within the first few weeks, somebody handed me that book and said, you're opening a restaurant here, or yeah. read huge. this, right? A huge. And and this idea of, like, wow, you know, create processes and manage the processes so that you don't have to manage the people, mm. you know. And, and what we, you know, we, we started in the, in the beginning, and but you're absolutely right. Like, that's not who we wanted to be was just essentially um, a series of replicable systems or processes, right? Like the people part of it was why I got into the business and, and what was keeping me in the business and yeah. was making it exciting for me. So we bought, we created, you know, a, a sort of an internal uh, management style where I personally, with every manager we hire, sit down and, and walk them through it. And uh, and it's it's sort of ideas and philosophies borrowed from a number of 
things that I've seen done successfully. I may not take the whole package, mm. but I can take a piece out of something that I saw that I said, this really makes a lot of sense. Um, so books that inspired that along the way were, you know, uh, Simon Sinek, I mean, I love his stuff. And, and that first TED Talk he gave, you know, was an eye-opener uh, for me. And then, so, so start with uh, why to the listeners at home. Start with why, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, the golden and then, circle yeah, of uh, we're not selling – they were not selling uh, microchips and bits and processors. We're selling songs in your pocket, and we want to change the world uh, exactly. as a as a mission. Okay, start with why. Yeah, and then and then leaders eat last. I mean, mm. so these were you know very good. These are good books, and then that that I really connected with, and then also just looking at other companies, whether it was Netflix or Amazon, and and looking at things that have become famous for you know whether it's Amazon's flywheel or whether it's mm-hmm. Netflix's famous sort of like you know. Um, it's it's a deck that you know, which is like an onboarding deck or something about the philosophy, and we shifted from a context-based, I mean, sorry, a control-based company to a context-based company. Mm. So where you know, over and over again, I would emphasize to somebody, it's not enough to tell somebody what to do. You got to also, also explain to them the why behind why we do it this way. And if anything, then empower that person if they understand the why. They can throw the how out the window if they come up with a better how. Mm. You know, there's only so far I can do with creating the house. I mean, we can have a starting place. This is how we do opening duties. This is how we cook this dish. This is how we give feedback. Um, but more importantly, let's talk about why. Mm. Why do we do this way? Why do we provide feedback that way? Why do we do this? Way? And then trust that if you have smart people that get it and have a starting place, they'll probably come up with something with way better than anything I could have ever come up with myself, mm. you know. With, with the limited bandwidth and or experience and or perspective that I have from mm. where I sit. And that's so far worked well. So when we expand now, and our first expansion, for example, was Chaipani Decatur, I gutted my Chaipani team off the white people. Not completely down zero, but I took half of my white people, you know, the people that got the why of what we do, what we do, and sent them to Decatur nine people went there wow. and essentially built an entire organization by just having these, you know, so I, I, I don't just call them culture carriers, which is what the word that you hear used. I call them like why carriers. Wow. Like, these guys go and they really embed into the new team, the why Chaipani, why Indian street food, why this particular way of giving feedback, why we have a cult, this kind of culture, you know, and, and that's how we work. So I won't go somewhere and open something if I don't have, my white people to to go there and, and build that. And the cool thing is, this idea of why it's contagious, it's infectious. It's like mm. once somebody gets it, it's, you don't have to worry about repeating that part over and over again. Mm. Uh, as versus a checklist, you know, or a, here's how we do something. You're constantly repeating that over and over again. So, but there's also books like the Checklist Manifesto. Yeah, you know? yeah, and I love that one too. And I, and I, so the hybrid we use is like, like checklists don't tell you why you should do something. Checklists just make sure that um, you know you didn't miss anything when you're thinking something through. It's like it's it, it opens up your bandwidth for bigger picture thinking, so that mm. you're not having to waste bandwidth on like, wait a minute, did that outdoor light get turned on, or did that P and L get recorded? You know, whatever line item get sent or that expensified. So it's 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 a uh, it's my you know. You probably and all the founders you've talked to, everybody's worked up their own hybrid system yeah. of how they want to manage and maintain their processes, and we have we have our own. Wow, uh, I love the idea of of sending why people like the, as forward 
uh, reconnaissance as as community builders, as the heroes and the champions yeah. of the new location. I'll ask a why. Uh, why Decatur? Why why Georgia first? Uh, or because yeah, because we had uh, it was we had a white person already there that was a, that was a champion. Like so, one of uh, my one of uh, my early um, you know employees slash partners in the business, uh, Isaac. Um, and what I mean by partner in the business, like very early people that joined us. In addition to hey, we're going to open a couple places. I also said I'm going to give you some equity in this business. Mm. I'm just going to grant it to you. You know, this wasn't partners based on cash investments. These were partners that were, they were in it with me. Mm. There's no better definition of a partner than someone that's in it with you. So, uh, Isaac's, um, uh, had, a, uh, his brother-in-law lived in Decatur and it just fell in love with what we're doing in Chaipani and would just keep bugging us. It's like, if you ever go somewhere, come here. And, you know, and, uh, one day he picked up the phone and said, look, I don't know what your expansion plans are from a timeline standpoint, this place opened up downtown where you will crush it if you go there. So we hopped in a car literally the next day, four of us, me, Molly, Isaac, and, and I forget, Mikey was with me. And we drove to uh, Decatur. And um, I'd, my big concern while driving was just like, are we ready for a big city? Are we ready for yeah. Atlanta? Are we ready for a major market? There's a big difference between being you know, well-known and loved in this in a small town like Asheville, which has a unique sensibility anyways. But, you know, the way the stars aligned, we didn't show up in Atlanta. We showed up in this little little neighborhood called Decatur that has its own downtown, its own little scene, its own mm. little foodie scene going on. And it felt manageable and small. And I said, great, we're not opening an Atlanta restaurant. We're opening a neighborhood restaurant in Decatur, and this is going to be our city. So that's the why behind behind moving to Decatur. I love that. It's also, uh, it's a little bit of, um, oh man, what is his name? Uh, Peter Thiel talk where uh, he, he talks about like restaurants are the ultimate um, commodity, but they all market and build their their presences saying that they are uh, a monopoly. It's like, we are going to own Decatur. Like we're going to do right. Right. neighborhood right. 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 restaurant yeah. Uh, uh, right. Indian uh, food yeah. in Decatur, yeah. and we're monopolizing yeah. this location. Uh, yeah. And the reality is, like, well, there's a million other substitutes and 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 compliments, and people could go to Italian if they don't want Indian tonight. Uh, and so, when thinking ab- about you know restaurants, yeah. how twelve years into this, are you yeah. thinking about building monopolies and you know the next location, like how? the next project how now are you trying to say uh so there's another chicken joint in town but we're doing this and it's going to be different uh how do you assess opportunity today 12 years into it i've never looked at it you know the way you described it as like how do you go in and own this market and 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 sort of like you know have that monopoly on it um for me it was like if i can create and offer an experience that's just simply amazing that people will at any given time want more of mm. like that's good enough. I think there's a, there's a market in that. So you go to Chaipani Decatur, I mean, you know, pre pandemic, I mean, you know, I've had, I've had um, second generation Indian 20 somethings or third generation sometimes come to me and say like, you know, for the first time in my life, like I was able to take my college friends, my high school friends, whatever, to an Indian restaurant and just be like so proud 
that, you know, my friends were like, this is the coolest place. Like, you guys have such, you know, just because culturally, you know, it's usually if it's Indian food, it's either some white tablecloth, you know, freaking posters in the wall that look like the tourism board put them up there and sitar music in the background, or it's some dive in a, in a, in a you know, uh, strip mall somewhere. So that's the kind of experience I'm trying to create. And not just for Indians, but for anybody that walks into it, like to feel like they've stepped into a cool place. It's a pretty big pool of people out there that are into cool experiences. Yeah. I don't need to own the Indian restaurant category. I just need to basically um, sort of, I'm not even owning the experience category. I mean, I feel like the, what makes the city amazing is having multiple experiences like that available to you. And we just want to be a really vibrant part of one of those experiences that somebody seeks out, whether it's for a date night, a special occasion, or just a, just a fun quick bite or to meet a friend. Um, it, it, you know, it's like, I've used this analogy at, um, uh, at Chaipani often, especially in the early days. I said, look, man, when two people, you know, when, What's the first thing you do when somebody comes to visit you from out of town that you haven't seen in a long time? You probably want to take them out for dinner or something mm-hmm. or for a drink, right? You, you, or you invite them to have some cook them a special meal, but outside of that, you want to take them somewhere, right? So, so there's an, there's a moment, there's an experience happening that, that a family or two people or, or lovers or businessmen already want to have. So the experience that we provide needs to enhance that experience. Mm not replace it, not get in the way of it, right? But so many people go out without the, without having an experience already lined up, and then the place serves as the experience, right? Oh, my God, we had such a great time. But the truth of the matter is, like, that's a smaller section of the marketplace to me that I care about than the people that are like, you know, oh, my God, you're from out of town. Like, where's the place where I can take you where we can have this amazing time together and then – it's made even more amazing by this environment we're in, whether it's a quick bite downtown or whether it's a, you know, a, a three hours at Chaipani with sort of Bollywood music and the lights and the dance. So that's what I said. I said, and the restaurants and the businesses that are successful at not, you know, replacing someone's experience that they're trying to have over a meal or, or connection or get, getting together with a friend or families in town and overwhelm them with what we're trying to do. That's the space I want to live in. Mm. So that's that's the best way I can describe how we try to curate and create a restaurant. And and for somebody, their experience is like you're downtown. I mean, you're three blocks from my office. I just want in and out. Mm. Great. We're not going to get in the way of that experience <laughs> either. Right? We're going to help yeah. you get it, and we're going to help you get out. So it's very it's very bespoke. It's very customized to the. And I tell my team all the time: pay attention to why these people are sitting at your table. Mm. Don't just assume it's because of the food. And don't just assume it's because we're Chaipani and then a hankering for Indian food. Dial in to why they're really there. Because mm. it ain't just because of us. Uh, there's something always going on other than that. And and I said, and here's a, and the people are like, well, I, I don't want to get, like, how do I engage with folks who know? I don't want to be hokey and say, hey, are you, what brings you to town today? And so on and so forth. I'm like, exactly. I said, but you lean into uh, when things are going right. Lean into when things go wrong. Mm. So, uh, guaranteed on any given night, you're going to have 400 f ups, <laughs> right? Somebody got the wrong food, waited too long, something was wrong, you know, blah 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 blah. You know, undercooked, overcooked. It's going to happen. And instead of constantly 
retreating from that and trying to basically build, you know, like a, a line of defense against that, 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 that. I said, lean into it because only when something goes remarkably well or remarkably badly can you have a real engaged moment with somebody. When someone's kind of upset because their food took 40 minutes, that's the first time they're being real with you. Mm. We're getting past the pleasantries. How you doing? My name is Marwan. Welcome to Chaipani. I hope you guys are having a great day. These are just transactional formalities. There's no relationship. There's no basis for a relationship between you and that customer. But if he's mad because something went wrong, now you have a basis for a relationship that you can build on. And I said, you seize those opportunities. Yeah. And you know, when we do it well, the people that we pissed off the most are now are like the best friends with because we lean into those. And then on the flip side, if you go, oh, you know, if you have an incredible positive, you know, experience and lean into that too. And, you know, we keep this little guest book by the door. It's just, it's like, it's just, you wouldn't even notice it if it wasn't there. And I flip through it like almost once a week just to say what people are saying. And, that to me is my little litmus test for whether we're doing this experiment I'm talking about well or not, because the emotional outpouring on a page sometimes, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll get choked up by just like, Whoa, we made somebody feel this way by just being in this humble restaurant where nothing costs more than 14 bucks in the menu. You know, it's like, uh, that's how somebody felt about it while being here. Cool. And I look more for how somebody felt than what they tell us how the food tasted. Mm. Cause yeah, we can make a great meal. I'm not worried about that. But how do they feel while they were here? That's what I'm looking for. And if it starts just being all about how the food tasted, then we're not doing something right. So that makes a lot that. of sense that's to the, me. That's the best I can explain. How do we how do we uh, own anything in any market? And and I, I that all uh, you're checking a lot of mental boxes for me. I'm thinking. A little bit of setting the table with uh, Danny Mayer's book, right? Yes, so, absolutely. like thinking about those moments where you can, uh, you know, radically overachieve or change someone's uh, experience in, in like a order of magnitude from where where it just once uh, right. was is huge. See, uh, just to the point, I mean, we were heavily influenced by Danny Meyer's book. I mean, it's a phenomenal book, and I would say the evolution of me for that takeover from the book is like. What Danny's trying to do is anticipate mm. people's needs, mm. right? And he's become a master of that. And I realized that, you know, where I want to be is we can never anticipate what anybody ever wants. So it's more or less about anticipating it and more about like, how can you be in the moment yeah. with somebody's needs, yeah. like in an authentic way? So it's two ways of looking at the same and two sides of the same coin. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just trying to be in the moment because I believe there's an authenticity to that that is even greater than when you anticipate someone's moments. Yeah. There's, there's something I've seen where, uh, they say that the number one way to increase a tip, uh, tip size, tip percentage is you drop, uh, mints when the tip, when the, when the, when the check hits the table. And if anyone on the table touches a mint, when you go to pick it up, you drop a couple more, uh, because you, you like, and you wink at like whoever picked a, whoever right. ate a mint, right. Like these, right. you know, these are for you know, whatever. Right. And then they right. remember that, and that was right. just like it's a small little nothing. But it's like I see right. you, I take these, throw them in your purse, whatever it is, uh, and it's it's a human moment, and that's not anticipatory. That's just the response. See what it's, happened, it's, right. and do the thing. 
Um, yeah, I mean, one one last little anecdote to this this part of the story is, uh, you know, when I worked at uh, for Lexus, they sent me to a seminar that uh, with the the head of Ritz Carlton at the time, a French guy. God, I can't remember his name. Anyways, wow. But he really had this amazing um, little speech he gave, and he was talking about customer service and the Ritz being legendary for customer service. And he basically said that they've been trying to figure out what customer service means forever, and the closest they have. Uh, to figuring out what customer service in their minds is, is that um, it's it's not that you um, can't didn't screw up. Um, it's not that you didn't give somebody what they thought they were paying for, but it's that when something goes wrong, that they see that you actually care. Mm. And to him, that was customer service after all this time. And the rich would do crazy experiments. They would you know, uh, send somebody a guest that just checked in off to the room with the wrong key, like intentionally do little mistakes and then essentially go overboard to correct or fix the mistake, you know, that they've intentionally made and, and, and try to collect data on how people behaved and reacted and how they scored the, um, the uh, writs on customer service, you know, and they had control groups and they did a lot of that in the eighties and nineties trying to figure out this definition of customer service. And he was telling me these things and they were, at the time, I remember blowing my mind, and I was working for Lexus, which was also renowned for customer service at the time, and and that's why we were um, I was so leaning into this so much. But till today, you know, that's I remember that, like what the guy, what's arguably one of the most successful, you know, chains known for service, basically boiled down to said like it ain't that you screwed up, and it ain't that you know um, you, you people didn't get what they wanted. It's basically if they saw that you cared. Mm. I mean, and we feel that way too, man. Yeah. Whether it's an airline, whether it's a ticket mix-up, all we want to know is like, does the other person, even if they can't do anything about it, if they show that they cared about you yeah. and what you're going through, like, okay, I'll take that. And it seems to me that oftentimes the people who are interfacing with the customers uh, can be put in a really precarious situation because they're the last line, first line, however you want to think about it. And if they're not managed well, right. empowered with uh, context versus control, right. and they're not shown that directors, managers, bosses, employers care, right. how are they meant to show that you know right. that same energy to a customer? Unless they're just like a superhuman, super person who is a human and care, right? And then you got right. someone special you need to promote or, or teach or train or something. Right. But uh, it seems like it's very... Um, it's more of a culture thing if you can yeah. show that you care or that you're present or that you're listening and that you hear your guest uh, than it is um, anything else. Absolutely. Everybody everybody that comes to work from us, the number one thing is getting them to actually understand that we empowered you. Mm. Like the, it's still hard for people to like they'll, they'll come back to me and like, you know, is there is there an upper limit in what we're supposed to take care of a guest? And I was like, I trust you. <laughs> Like, you know, it's, it's you know, maybe the context, right? Yeah. You know, and, and we're a restaurant. There's only so much we can do. There's a guest. Like, you figure this out. We trust you to figure this out. So context. And, and, and it takes takes a couple of months for yeah. our staff to really own that, oh, wow, they meant it when they said, we don't have a policy. I don't, I don't have a – like, we don't go back and see how many comps you did on the night or what you gave or what you did. The only reason I look at it is to figure out if, if 
somebody's missing the context yeah. of, of why we do these things, you know, or, or using it as a crutch. Uh, but, but yeah, so wow. it, it, it works, um, you know, and I've had managers come in from other places and like, whoa, aren't you worried about X, Y, and Z? And I was like, if I am worried about somebody doing X, Y, and Z, then I made a bad hire. Mm. It's not that my system is bad that I just didn't catch that we hired somebody that wants to take advantage of or abuse, you know, the fact that we trust and we have contacts. So like, it's on us. It's mm. not on that person. You might have heard Range Urgent Care on our podcast. Husband and wife team lives right here in Asheville, building a better urgent care model. What are they doing? They're making scheduling seamless and straightforward and honest. When they say they'll see you at 4 p.m., you'll be seen at 4 p.m. They make pricing straightforward as well. $149 a visit or less if you subscribe to an annual subscription, which I do. It costs me $30 a month, and I love the peace of mind. But not just that. You don't just get to go in person. You can do virtual visits uh, over your computer or over your phone, and they'll even come to you. They'll do home visits. And to me, I mean, it seems like a absolute no-brainer. You can bring, they have family plans, they have business plans. To me, it's a peace of mind thing. It, it makes me feel confident and comfortable knowing that I can see range uh, in my subscription a number of times a year, and it's built into my, my plan. I will not be surprised by a crazy cost, and it is covered by most major insurance policies. So, if you haven't heard of Range Urgent Care, I welcome you to check out that episode with the power couple that runs it. You can check out makingitinashville.com forward slash range, makingitinashville.com forward slash range to read more about these subscription options and get links to the Range website using our link or using our discount code of making it in Asheville. We'll get you a free month in an annual subscription. Again, range, urgent care. You can say that we sent you or visit makingitinashville.com forward slash range. Wow. Uh, and so I, I, I want now to think about or ask you about how you think about growth today than you did 2009, 2010, right? You are a part of the S&W expansion, you have multiple restaurants, new restaurant concepts, you have Spice Walla. What what are you using as barometers? Because as you, I imagine, do more, win more, not every opportunity is created equal at this point. You have to, I imagine you're saying no to a lot, maybe. Yeah. Uh, how are you thinking about projects, next steps, growth today? Um, great question. Things are, you know, just the last year alone, the pandemic has for a lot of people probably affected the way they think of growth. So for me, the pandemic may have changed sort of how some of our plans, mm. but they haven't necessarily changed in you know, our goals and our overall sort of holistic approach to how, how we want to do things. So you'd ask me at the beginning, you know, are, are you call yourself an entrepreneur? You know, and I said, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel like what gets me excited is creating, you know, creating concepts that um, can uh, give experiences that I'm excited about, you know, sort of like if I was passionate and excited about this, 
do I feel like others will feel that way about this? So, for example, why Buxton Hall Barbecue, right? I mean, I'm, right. I'm an Indian guy, and I've been opening Indian street food restaurants. Um, well, three things. So number one, you know, I saw an opportunity to help somebody else, you know, to help create something for somebody else other than just myself. Uh, number two, you know, the same passion and um, uh, with Elliot Moss, you know, my partner at Buxton Hall, for what he wanted to do in terms of changing the way people looked at East Carolina barbecue um, versus the way what I was trying to do with with uh, with Chaipani. Like, there's a story here, mm. and it's personal, and and you know, he's trying to afford the story. And the number three would be like, this is an incredible experience. Like, you know, we can create cool. something that will fulfill that experience, but. I want to be careful to not just make it sound like, oh, I'm just into it for creating experiences that I can, you know, to get off on how people are excited about what I do. Um, our mission statement, if there if there was one, um, at Pani, we're not the kind of company where we put mission statements up in the boardroom for people to look at if they come in uh, or, or beat you over the head with it when you sit down, you know, about us being a mission-driven company, but about... I want to say three years ago, I, I gathered our entire team of about 350 people and basically said, we're no longer uh, internally, we're not going to see ourselves anymore as a restaurant group that's trying to make an impact in our communities. We're going to see ourselves as an impact group that is powered by restaurants, food, and hospitality. So a big piece of our growth is looking to see where can we make the most impact on the community we're in. Mm. And in the most variety, you know, in the most varied way possible, uh, it doesn't have to be. Oh, it's only about charitable giving or supporting, you know, an initiative. Yeah, all those are there. I mean, we, you know, for example, believe so much in that. Like, you know, pre-pandemic, um, you know, every Wednesday was a give back night where every member of our team, anybody on our team, from a dishwasher, you know, to a general manager, can say, "Hey, I have an organization that I believe." deserves care and attention and we say great you're empowered to create a collaboration with them so that we can create a give back night and give back a percentage of proceeds on a wednesday night to that particular organization so the more we did the more we did that of that the more i realized like that's what i really want to do mm. so so growth you know so that and it's all part of the same cycle so even helping our team members grow it's positive impact of the community you're in when a dishwasher can one day be, you know, the, the, the chef de cuisine of the kitchen, that's positive impact. It changes, you know, so much. And it's, it's what's that old saying about a butterfly flaps its wings on one continent and there's a typhoon in another. I really believe in that. I believe in the small things done that can make huge impact, you know, so don't go out there and try to change the world in a, in a fell swoop. How about just take care of that homeless guy that sleeps in front of your door every night, mm. you know, help him. And and you never know where these seeds you plant, what they'll do and where they'll go and, and, and what could happen. And, and that's our approach to that impact is small, easy, quick, manageable chunks instead of large, grand gestures. Because mm. uh, I honestly believe the small things can lead to much bigger things than us trying to go out there and make a grand gesture. We're not big enough to make a grand gesture that big. Um, so growth to me now, post-pandemic, it's even more urgent that I lean into where does our community and our communities need that help. Mm-hmm. And for me, community isn't just, you know, it's it's starts with the people that work for me. Um, you know, so for example, I just, just uh, 
last week, you know, we we had done this at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, announced a uh, an emergency fund for a team, where you know if there was something that was just not covered by unemployment or or insurance or whatever, like the falling through the cracks thing that happened to people, uh, you know, especially when at times of stress and economic stress. So we created a, a fund for that to just um, take care of anybody that could fall through the cracks so that we didn't have to go out looking for them, that they would come to us. Mm. You know, and that, that's how I looked at it was. And then we just did the same right now because we're reaching the end of what's been a really hard winter. Mm. And I'm worried that there's just people falling through the cracks that I can't see. And what can I do to where they can then see uh, me uh, instead of me looking for them? And we created a fund like that. So it starts with your team. And then it grows from there. You know, like I said, it's the homeless guy, you know, across the street. It's the it's the other business that's struggling through the pandemic that wasn't as fortunate to stay open or busy. Like, is there a way for me to reach out and help them and, and partner with them to create something and then radiate out in circles uh, until the point of diminishing returns? Yeah. Uh, so the furthest my circle goes is all the way to India. Um, there's a the largest slum in Mumbai has um, um, a small little uh, uh, community center there, where um, the kids that are, don't go to school because they can't because their parents can't afford to send them to school can instead come there and for free be taught English, arithmetic, math, and and also just be a place where they're not getting into trouble. And it's primarily for girls because that's usually the kids that the parents are not investing, if you're living in the slum and sending them to school, they'd rather could use, you know, an able-bodied pair of hands to help around the house or clean or, you know, or, or provide for the family or go get water from, you know, which is a three-hour trick every day. So it was, again, that's like, I can't go in there and save a slum. But mm-hmm. if I could help 20 girls go to college and graduate, the impact that they might be able to make could be mind-blowing to me. And sure enough, like two of, two of the girls that we, we sponsored to go to university both gave TED Talks not that long ago in India, like TEDx's. Yeah. One of them because they developed an app to help find water. Because um, one of the biggest parts of the day that takes up all somebody's time is finding where the water is because there's no running water to your little hut. So you got to go find a community well or a community spigot. And by the time you get there, it may be out. Mm. You know, And then you got to like, oh, we heard water's running over there. So she created a crowdsourcing app where people could let each other know where the water was, you know, just, so it's, it's the small thing. So growth for me is finding opportunities like that and then building something around it that can help feed and support that. And, 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 um, and, you know, while also, while also providing a living and giving back to investors or shareholders or stakeholders, paying taxes, you know, all that stuff. So. Wow. Uh, I love that a lot. I I'm going to figure out how to how to harness that. I think that there's uh two things that have been really uh powerful paradigms. One is the the growth for your team, like to to uh, enable people to stay. Uh and then the idea of uh we're not in restaurants to have an impact, we're creating impact. And the way that we've chosen to do that is through restaurants. That's that's powerful, or you know, through the businesses that we start. Um, right. I all. I mean, this is almost less important, and I, I I'm concerned to ask it at this point because that was so powerful. Uh, when I look at the business model that I'm projecting onto Spicewalla, um, I think it's one of the coolest, smartest things I've seen, and a very long time. 
Uh, I would love to, it seems like if you go back to the beginning of your story, you were importing. Uh, so it, it might've been something that was always there, uh, waiting for, a and, uh, a new form of expression. But the thing that I'm personally loving about Spicewalla is how you've partnered with so many businesses, giving these other businesses a cool product that they get to sell with their name and logo on it. But also like that is the greatest marketing strategy that anyone's ever had in any business, in any like consumable business that I'm aware of. Uh, and the giant wins with Oprah and all that. So how did Spice Wallet, do you have a couple minutes to just sure. tell a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, it was a very accidental business, but when I say accidental, you know, if you create this synergistic flywheel of, mm-hmm. you know, of ideology and concepts and community and impact and food and hospitality and, and how you want to manage that. It's always remarkable to me, like the stuff that gets, that gets thrown off, so to speak, off of there that, that turns into these great little ideas uh, that you can do. So, um, you know, as, as I was sort of gaining a little bit of renown in the culinary community, if you will, I started doing a lot of collaborations and meeting up with chefs and doing dinners together and sort of all this kind of stuff. And, um, inevitably like you know we find ourselves in the pantry of some chef looking at their spices because you know it's like it's and, and and just comparing like what the spices we bought to cook with versus what they carried and and um uh sort of you know jokingly i'm like oh my god you know like this stuff is like where did you get this stuff from like from my supplier you know from my broadline supplier and i could see where the gap was the gap was that the broadline suppliers, the the Cisco's and the PFG's and the, you know, uh, all these different companies of the world that U.S. Foods and whatever, they kind of, you know, try to, like you said, uh, cater to the lowest common denominator mm-hmm. where, you know, some confluence of price and availability fits everybody, right? And to specialize in something um, over and above that just takes a lot of resources and willpower and, 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 and the feeling you had to market. Uh, but one of these companies, um, it was called Southern Foods. They're a local sort of Carolina-based um, uh, food delivery company that we dealt with. And we liked them a lot because they really specialized in local purveyors. So if you wanted to find a local cheesemaker in, let's say, Winston-Salem or somebody, mm-hmm. chances are that you'd go to Southern Foods and they'd carry that line. Uh, they kind of prided themselves on that. Uh, the owner of the company at the time came to me and said, hey, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't know what you've been doing out there, but I'm having more and more chefs and restaurateurs asking me if I carry this and I carry that. And when I, when my rep says, well, you know, what made you want to do that? Well, Marilyn was by and he coached in our kitchens and he had this amazing coriander, you know, from India. How come you guys don't carry it, right? So he, we were sort of joking about this. And he said, but no, seriously, like, could you advise us and consult us on helping develop this more upscale more sort of you know um, comprehensive line of spices for the small percentage of our customers that do want that, and I'm like, why 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 are you assuming it's a small percentage of mm. your customers? And he goes, well, you know, it's it's not everybody's familiar with the spices. I'm like, they're not familiar because because it, partly you guys, like you know, they're all it, it's not a desire. Everybody wants better food. Yeah. So you as the purveyor, it's your job to present to your customers the best option at all uh, available. Like you're doing it with, you talk, you know, a, a great game with the cheese program you guys have or the, or, you know, or, or the produce or the fact that you carry this, especially line of, you know, um, pork from this one company. 
uh, do the same with spices. And, and I guess I must have impressed that upon him because he circled back uh, a few months later and said, would you be in a position to be that person for us? Be that purveyor, if you will, that, that supplies us. I'm like, whoa, this is, this is a whole new ballgame. But again, I saw there again like, huh, if we do this right and if we can figure this out, there's an opportunity for restaurants to actually produce better food. Hmm. And isn't that a good thing? Isn't that in line with who we are as a company and as a business? Is uh, And maybe I start this but then hand it off to somebody else and maybe the industry goes and maybe – you know, somebody else figures out that there is a market for a higher quality of spices. And bear in mind, you know, we're not talking about grocery store. I mean, anybody can go to a grocery store and have a great variety of spices even four years, three years ago when we started the company. I'm talking about chefs that prefer to buy from their their distributor because it's convenient. They're not yeah. going to uh, the grocery store to buy, you know, spices or, or order them online from these, these more boutique companies. They're just looking for a all-in-one solution. Mm. So I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, again, just having some, you know, uh, more, uh, you know, more bravery than sense sometimes when I jump into these things. I said, fine, we'll do it. So we found a little space down at the factory and then James and I, and here's where I felt like I could, I could do it. I felt like we can, we can procure, like we know what to look for. Mm. And then all I have to do is figure out the middleman logistics to get it from procurement into the kitchen well, I've got this company that's willing to do the distribution part of it. Yeah. So really, all I'm doing is procuring, and the other thing I understand is repackaging. Like, right. what does a chef in a kitchen look for, literally down to the shape of the jar, you know, and how big or how small it would, it would be? So, for example, if you're going to sell every spice in a one-size-fits-all jar, you're going to have a chef that buys 32 ounces of, let's say, black pepper and goes through it in a week, but then also needs a little bit of clove but it gets 32 ounces of it, and then it's going to sit in this kitchen for four years. Yeah. Right? So I'm saying we, we, we are going to offer a chef-based solution of spices to chefs, and they're going to thank us for like, oh, thank God. Like I could buy this and this size and this and this size, and there's a company out there that's willing to put the effort in that's not catering to the lowest common denominator yeah. when it comes to size or price. And that's how it started. Um, and that was basically most of 2018. And then by early 2019, uh, folks started coming to us and saying, hey, uh, you know, I heard about you through blah, 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 blah. These are individual customers. Can I just pop by and buy some spices? Do you ship? Hmm. You know, and I'm like, no, we just got jars this big. I don't, I don't have anything I can sell to you. I mean, we were literally putting stuff in small little little sample bags yeah. and handing them out to anybody that stopped by the factory. Um, and, and, and I it started thinking about it. I'm like, well, everybody is, isn't the same true. Even on the retail side, it isn't everybody. If you open their drawer, have paprika, they bought five years ago or, or longer, close powder, or longer. Right. How so old are these bay leaves? <laughs> right. Exactly. Not, so it's not a question of access. Like, you can go to the store and buy something fresh every week. We do it with chicken. We do it with produce. We do it with all this thing, but we're not into spices. So in my mind, I set out to form a spice company not to because there was a shortage of access to spices, but because there was a shortage of um, the uh, education and mm. information and, and the culinary credibility behind it. And I felt like I had that because of the restaurants. 
So it was this perfect confluence. It felt like I'm sitting perfectly the intersection of having the culinary credentials to say, this is how you're supposed to do it, because I'm not just a spice purveyor. And also having having the supply of it, saying, yes, I am also a spice purveyor. I can fulfill both needs in the marketplace. I can explain to you why it is that you need to buy whole cumin and toast it and grind it at home instead of buying this powder stuff mm. and putting it in a drawer. So that's the so the the retail part of Spicewala literally started with an education campaign. Like we were going to weave that storytelling into every tin that we sold. We were going to pick up the phone and call you after you received your paprika and tell you everything. Like you know that's how that's how idealistic yeah. we were. Like we're going to create an ecosystem that if you buy a spice from us, you're going to be your cooking's going to be better. Your 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 you know your 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 family's going to love you even more. You know the. The uh, I mean, we wanted to change, um, you know, uh, your approach to how you felt about cooking at home mm. and give you that confidence in the kitchen, right? And then the pandemic hit, and it's like the intersection of both of them was just was was just like a rocket ship taking yeah. off. Wow, it it uh, makes me think of a couple concepts. One is um, just the concept of selling sawdust, which is you know a, a the idea of like whatever the main action is, you're cutting wood. What are what are you called it a flywheel? But like, what are some of the things that come off of the process of cutting wood that have value? You sourced high quality uh, spices to create high quality meals. You now know about that process. Maybe I can repackage the sawdust, and that is also true because the original like Ford Model Ts, I think. Uh, were the impetus for the original uh, Bridgestone uh, saw cubes. Uh, the idea, like what what is now, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on the word, but coal and like the 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 easy start fireplace coal like you would grill with, it came out of a uh, Ford factory, right? Like that was, I didn't know that. yeah, I, and I'm doing a bad job. So the link to that story will be in this uh, episode show notes. Sure. Uh, but, but there are, uh, there are all these great examples of, of products being the byproduct of something else. And right, something else like, you know, the, the, the 3M post-it sticky note, you know, where the glue was just too weak to do anything <laughs> other than, yeah, 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 absolutely. And, 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 and this really felt like it. it, it was a, but, but the cool part, Part is like you know, the, it's not just a byproduct; it becomes the value exactly um, proposition. This yeah. thing that you thought was a byproduct, and and I and you know, as a part of it, I see local businesses getting to be you know on the logo of some of the spice wallet products, and to me, that is like what a great way to rise all of the tides. But the reality is. You know, whoever your partners are locally or across the country at this point, I don't know where they all are. Uh, every single one of them is now your marketing partner. What a cr- what a crazy cool uh, growth engine as well. Yeah, I mean, and and that was it tied into the storytelling. Like mm. you know, in my mind, I'm saying like if we're trying to educate people on spices and the impact it makes on food, um, you know, I will, uh, you know, don't get me on my on my diatribe about about it but you know the, when somebody looks at me and goes like oh wow how, you know how big of a role does spices play in, in, in food and i'm just like it's the only thing that adds flavor <laughs> other than that you got a piece of meat or a vegetable like that's it <laughs> for the history of mankind the only thing that's added flavor is spices and more importantly than that i can put a piece of chicken on 
uh, on a plate. And whether you're eating Indian food or, or Japanese or Italian or, you know, or, or, or Middle Eastern or, or South American, the only way you're going to tell what a dish is is because of the spices and seasonings used in preparing that piece of chicken, right? Yeah. It, is, it is the cultural um, you know, uh, differentiator. Uh, the not just not just you know flavor. I mean, it's like uh, it's and people go like, well, isn't it technique? I'm like, no. Every culture braises, fries, sautes. You know, th- those techniques are universal. Yeah. Like you stick something in a pot, you stick something in water. Like you know, and the ingredients are universal. So what differentiates the very idea of being Italian food versus Indian food versus that the other? I like it boils down to the spices and seasonings and herbs used. 90% of the time. So anyway, so that's my, like, that's my, like, you and, know, and I love uh, that. I love that. It's how true. I approach this, you know, and, and that's why I like really like, you know, I'm not just saying this because it helps me sell more spices. I'm saying this, like, you know, open that drawer in your kitchen and take a close look at what it is that you've decided to is the quality of what you want to add flavor to your food by with and, and the experience that you want to have. But with the storytelling part of it, which is how this sort of started. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just thought to myself, like, um, are there other businesses which can help me um, demonstrate what I'm what I'm saying right now? Can cor- coriander and French broad chocolate, you know, make somebody go like, whoa? And 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 the reason spice well is in the label is not to demonstrate is as much for the marketing component of it, but as much to demonstrate to somebody that yeah, the quality matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so whether, you know, this cumin and roots hummus or, you know, all of these, you know, or the spices and, and some of these beers that we do, uh, it, it's that it, the, the, uh, the benefit, the rising is like, it's making people pay attention to this, what make that thing taste so good. It's of taking for granted that, oh, what makes this taste so good is because it says on the label, you know, frozen, whatever, whatever, or, or this, that, the other. But no, dude, like that ingredient list in the back, <laughs> like that's where it all comes from. Yeah. So uh, so that's why we, we leaned into that and we found willing businesses and participants. And then the other piece of it is it absolutely is me saying, uh, you know, how can how can we synergistically help each other? How can – if saying Spice on the Label helps you sell more, great. Yeah. That, I, that's I, what we're here for. I love it. Um, we already asked about how you think about growth. Um, I know we, we just came out of a, a year where planning for the future, um, perhaps unlike any year recently, at least, uh, proven to be, you know, a, a, a nice idea and then you throw it out and you start over. Um, a lot of restaurants shut down last year, a lot of huge restaurant tour names and brands kind of made some aggressive pivots. Um, it seems to me that you just hunkered down and said, how are we going to get through it? Let's figure it out. Um, there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel. What are you thinking about for the rest of 2021? So, yeah, 20, the rest of 2021 year, we're internally calling it the Band-Aid year, right? Instead of, you know, if, if 2020 was, you know, the open wound. wound. <laughs> right. Instead of, this is the, this is the clean up Band-Aid and, and stop the bleeding year yeah, for yeah. us, right? Um, and then 2020, you know, two will hopefully then be sort of, uh, the, the rebound year. A lot of folks, there's a lot of talk about, you know, is this pandemic going to fundamentally change the business? Is it fundamentally going to change the way people want to buy and eat food? You know, 
I think I, I don't. Here's what I'm saying: it may introduce new ideas and new habits and new patterns, but it doesn't take away from anything that's old. As in, like the reason people want to go out to eat is as old as time. Mm. You know, we talked about that. You know, where do you want to meet somebody when you know when they come from out of town? Like, sure. where do you want to celebrate? Where do you want to have a special occasion? Where do you want to propose? All that's going to happen in in a food or beverage establishment, right? When you travel, like, what's the most thing you're excited about the most if you go to Italy or France or Spain, right? It's not like going to the grocery store shopping, cooking in your apartment. Um, so those things are fundamentally, I don't think, will ever change. Um, the and, and it's just as a matter of like, how long does it take? for the general population of America to feel comfortable yeah. sitting in close proximity. And that's just a function of uh, time for me. Like, you know, um, uh, so, so I, I don't feel like I need to do some pivot for the long term. Sure. I had to do a pivot for the short term, which was to, um, you know, move to takeout and, and streamline and, and stuff like that. But what I was able to do in, in 20, 20 and now into 2021 is say other opportunities even in the middle of sort of you know the, the slowdown to um, future proof to uh, future proof not the, the growth of the business and future proof jobs for employees so i just recently sent out an email to everybody saying like hey i just want to again reiterate why it is in the middle of a pandemic when it feels like people's hours are less and, and jobs are cut and so on and so forth where we're still looking at, at expanding it is to ensure that if something like this were to ever happen again, we have a wider base and a bigger buffer to to handle it so that, you know, there's even less concern or fear about anybody losing their jobs or not getting the hours they need or, or feeling they have to get laid off. Um, that's why we do it. And also, um, you know, to continue to yeah, continue to do what we do, which is make an impact in the community. So, um and, you know, there are always, uh, you know, there's, there's devastating losses that can happen. And and there's also then, but sometimes, like, if you're thinking on your feet and being smart, opportunities to do something that you couldn't have done if things were going swimmingly well. Mm. You know, um, what I mean by that, like, now more than ever, I feel like developers are desperate for a concept to come in and fill a space that was empty, one of these businesses that did go under. and you know, it's like for me in, in, in Asheville in particular, like, it's like, I just feel like, um, if I can do my best to, um, fill, you know, um, fill a, a space that brings light and, and revenue and income and, and, and keeps the community vibrant, then I will, I will play my part in doing that. Like, mm. I don't want to see ever, Asheville look like when I first got here, which was a lot of, a lot of, you know, businesses for rent and for lease and available for sale back in 2008, 2009. So there's a piece of me that says like what little part I can play in helping, you know, revitalize a spot I will do. And the SNW project was a perfect example of me looking at something that's been sitting there for so long hmm. underutilized, you know, that could be such an amazing engine of, vibrancy and joy and, and economic engine and taxes and, 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 and employment. So that's why when, you know, Doug Ellington sort of approached me about helping out with this project, I told him I'll do it as much for the impact it'll have on this town as it will for any opportunity for me personally. It's amazing. Um, 
and I want to respect your time. And so the last question of today's uh, conversation is uh, a word association I ask most everyone. When you sure. think of Asheville and the word community, what shows up for you? When I think of the word Asheville and, I mean, community together or separately? Sorry. Uh, together, yeah. So uh, those two words show up. How do you connect them with a Venn diagram? Um, I would say resilience would be the word that would come to me. I think if you have community, then it's easier to be resilient than when you're doing it alone. I love it. And that shows up in a lot of the projects that you've you've built. Yeah. yeah. Because of community, we're able to be resilient. Beautiful. So uh, with that last smaller, more throwaway of questions, if people want to follow along in the uh, in the story and, and participate in some of the brands, where are we pointing them? Oh, boy. I know. I feel like <laughs> I need a website or something of my own one day. But, you know, we uh, I mean, I'd say follow us on Instagram, you know, okay. I mean, just follow. You can follow me at Marwan Arani on Instagram or follow Chaipani or follow Spicewalla. Because that's where we do most of the storytelling. Yeah. So it's just, it's a fun experience for somebody to follow along. It's not as academic as a, here's our newsletter. You know? yeah. <laughs> and we'll tell you what we're doing. Or, or here's our company annual statement. Uh, but on Spicewell, I feel like, uh, Spicewell, on Instagram, I feel like we get to, we get to be who we are, which is, you know, fun, playful, um, irreverent. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I you'll, you'll probably pick up on this if you follow us on Instagram, like, we take what we do seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously at all. So that's, a beautiful that's sort of thing. like how we like to do things. <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. Well, thank you very much for the time uh, today. It was a sincere privilege. Well, same here. Thank you for taking the time to interview me. I, as you can tell, I, like, I love to talk and I love to tell <laughs> stories. Uh, so it was, it was a real pleasure to be with you.